In 2 Timothy chapter number 3, in verse number 1, Paul writes this. He says, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And here's the only command in the passage. Paul says, avoid such people. Now, to keep it in context, and I'm not going to go into a verse-by-verse Bible study so much as I am going to exhort us tonight, but in context, Paul is speaking of the characterization of an age, the last times that had already begun by the time Paul wrote that. Uh, Acts chapter number 2 tells us literally that the last days began with Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth or the manifesting of the church. Those are when the last days were specified in Scripture as def- defined as beginning. And so if the last days began 2,000 years ago, then I don't think it's unreasonable for you and I to acknowledge that we are living perhaps in the very last of the last days. And as we are thinking along those lines, we need to read what the Scripture says so we can become convinced of at least two things. One, that the world around us is actually operating exactly the way that God's Word says they're going to operate. So we can't be too dumbfounded. We can't feign surprise on too great of a level because as people that believe the Word of God, we were told this is going to happen. Now, it's no fun when we're seeing it happen, but we were told. And so we should expect the world not to get better, not to move towards a utopian existence, but to actually begin to crumble in certain ways before our very eyes, like in certain facets of society right now, we are seeing it crumble. But the second thing that we ought to know is this, that because these things are happening, Jesus told us ahead of time so that we could be like the sons of Issachar and discern the times and know what we ought to do. And what we ought to be doing is preparing our own lives to get ready for Jesus Christ to come as we're going to stand before him, but also to propagate the gospel and to share with those that have not yet believed the wonderful message that though the world is displaying hell, the king is coming from heaven. And he presents himself to any who are willing to accept him. And so as we think about that, I want to get into these verses this evening. And let's just begin where I just read. We have the description of those days. What days? These are actually defining moments, not only of our day, but also of the days that Samuel was living in. And I'll make that case in a moment. Again, let's look at these verses here. Remember what Paul is saying. He says this. Now, I want you to understand something. He's telling Timothy this. Timothy, you need to understand this. And then he wants, he tells him what he wants them to understand. Here's what the last days are going to look like. And I'm not going to read those verses again, but I am going to give you like five categories that Paul defines the last days in. And I'll leave it up to you to ask and answer whether or not this is clearly defining the day that we live in now. So first of all, it's going to be idolatrous days idolatrous days. And it's described here in these five verses. It'll say people are going to love themselves. They're going to love money. They're going to love pleasure. And they're going to love themselves and their money and their pleasures more than they could ever or did ever love God. So one of the defining characteristics of the last days is that people are not going to be passionless. 
They're going to be passionate about the wrong things. They're going to displace God as the one who is worthy of adoration, the one in whom we are to take the most supreme delight. They're going to ask him politely, please step aside. When he refuses to do that, they're going to seek to go around him because what they're really taking pleasure is, is in their own selves and in the money that they can make and keep and then in the pleasures that they can in their own bodies with their own money bring to themselves. That is the pulse and the heartbeat of mankind apart from God. The the issue, the greatest, the original sin was not in the Garden of Eden. The original sin was in heaven. It is when Satan was so enamored with himself that he said, I am so beautiful, I am so amazing that I think I want that throne. And he wanted to be in God's place. The original sin was the sin of pride. And it was Satan's pride that got him evicted from heaven. And now as his world system has been crafted Over 6,000 years of human history, we find this, that we have taken on as a human race the image of the fallen one. We love ourselves. We we love, not, not necessarily you and not necessarily me, I'm talking about humanity. We love our money, and we love the pleasures that we can experience. All of that is simply one word. It's idolatry. Idolatry is when we love anything more than we love God. And all of us have been guilty of it, and all of us have to walk and be filled with the Holy Spirit and walk in the Spirit, or we will slip in and out of idolatry. That's what commercials do. Commercials entice you. You say, man, if I could only get that Ford F-150 with the the extended cab and the killer rims, and and, and man, they're going to give it to me for no no, uh, interest rate, and I've got to have that because I'm going to be happy. Or if I can buy that outfit or those shoes or that makeup or if I can get that cosmetic surgery or if I can live in that neighborhood or if I can, and the list goes on. And then all the pleasures that it affords. It's just idolatry, friends. Paul said, I want you to be aware of this, Timothy, that in the last days that's going to be rampant. Now, it was true in Samuel's day too, and we'll learn that as the series goes on. But not only idolatry, pride. It's a prideful generation. He says that people are going to be proud, they're going to be arrogant. And I love the ESV in this. They're going to be swollen with conceit. And I don't even think I have to make a big case on that. Um, this, this, this whole generation, it's happened in my lifetime. Um, I, I remember growing up in the, in the mid-70s in Lilburn that, you know, people didn't get away with pride and arrogance and boasting and bragging. I mean, we were taught not to do that. You could excel, you could win, you could be a champion, but you were to do it in a spirit of humility. And boy, that's out the door. We see it in our sports arena. We see it in politics all over the place. I mean, ultimately, the person that's going to become president is the one who does the best job bragging about themselves and tearing down the other opponent. And whoever the American public says does that the best, that's the person that's going to get voted in. And so we have this issue of pride and arrogance and walking with conceit. By the way, it's not just in politics and athletics. It's also in uh, religion. It's also in churches. We see that all over the place where, again, I reference it, the, the great man of God, the great woman of God, and, and everything needs to circle around this person and don't, don't lift up a word against the anointed person of God and scriptures are abused and they're twisted and they're misused and, and what we end up having is we end up having these uh, idolatrous exaltation of pastors and leaders and teachers and all of that. And Paul's actually talking about some of that uh, as, and as he compares what he's describing in chapter 3 with how he told Timothy the elders and leaders ought to be in chapter number two. And so we've got this issue of pride. If there's one thing that I want to encourage us uh, to be on guard in, in our hearts, it's this issue of pride. Do you know you can be quiet and still and calm and be filled with arrogance? 
Pride isn't necessarily just strutting. There are some people I've heard it said that can strut while they're sitting down. I mean, it's just pride is, is at work in people. And you don't have to be bombastic. You don't have to be, you know, just out there in front of everybody flaunting it. Pride sometimes is nothing more than the, 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 the simmering smugness as you quietly sit by and, and judge people. So we've got to put that to death in our hearts. But Paul said ultimately that the culture in the last days is going to be dominated by idolatry and dominated by pride. He also speaks of rebellion. Uh, let's not miss this, especially those of us that are raising children or helping our kids raise grandchildren. He says that, that children are going to be disobedient to parents at an elevated level in the last days. Disobedient to parents. They're going to be unthankful, unholy, which is simply rebellion against the Holy Spirit. You, you got heartless, unappeasable, slanderers, and not loving good. Now, is anybody depressed yet? Have, you, have I depressed you? Because, uh, I mean, this is not happy stuff. It really isn't. But unfortunately, I think that it's very easy in our churches for us to lose any kind of sense of, of need to hear stuff like this. Because we're living in a culture where in a lot of churches and just in general, just give us something good, give us something sweet, give us something easy. And that's why we're not enduring. That's not why we're not persevering. That's why we're not overcoming. We're bailing out at the first sign of conflict or the first difficulty. And we need to hear stuff like this. I, I'm just going to encourage parents right now. Remind your children that when they're being rebellious, you can take them straight to 2 Timothy chapter number 3 and say, let me show you something. The Word of God says that the world culture that is going to be folded up, that's condemned, is marked in part by disobedient children. You just give them the Word of God. Let them wrestle with it. Because the fact of the matter is, I, I, I believe I could stand firmly on this. Every successive generation, broadly speaking, is less respectful and far more bold in their disobedience to the parents than the generation before. Um, I was at camp last week with um, uh, not only our kids here from Newbridge, but many other churches. And our kids were just marvelous. I'm not saying that because I'm flattering anybody. Our kids were really, really good. But I had to kind of harangue a few of them, and I could not believe the overt disrespect and rebellion that was coming out of this children. And my, my thought was, I had my son with me on a couple of those occasions, and my son's like, wow, Dad, did you hear that? And I'm like, yeah, I heard that. He's like, what's that about? And I said, it's his parents' fault. You say, Jeff, I don't like that. No, 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 let me tell you. That kid is only allowed to act that way, or is only acting that way, is because somebody allowed him to. And, and, and it just builds on each other. So I don't want to get off into parental counseling here, but if you're raising toddlers, teach them real young that you don't mess with mama. Teach them real young that you don't mess with daddy. And teach them that because you love them, not because you're on an ego trip. But if they can't obey their parents, they're never going to obey their teachers. If they don't obey their teachers, they're not going to obey the civic authorities. And if they don't obey any of that, they're never going to obey God. And so we've got to realize that that disobedience is the pulsing heartbeat of the enemy. It's an infecting an entire generation at the end of the age. And then you've got, of course, this, this issue of them being unthankful. That's not just kids. I mean, I don't know when we've ever seen a more entitled generation, uh, presumptuous that they're owed something, and unthankful if they don't get exactly what they want. The issue of unholiness, which I'll come back to later. And then you have this word, I think, in verse number three, pardon me, heartless heartless. Just let that simmer for a minute. 
I, you know, I don't want to go through all the headlines, and I don't have to. You guys know the generation you're living in. And we're, we're not natural affection and, and kindness and things that would have been instinctually caring in our parents' or grandparents' generation. Now it's just everybody's cutthroat. Well, the Bible said that's the way it's going to be. You say, Jeff, we ought to change it. Well, listen, I believe you can make a difference in individuals, but I'm going to make you a promise here. You're never going to change the culture. You will not change the entire culture because it's been prophesied that at the end of the age, this is the way things are going to be. So what are we doing? We're not out to change the entire world. We're out like Jesus did. We're out to rescue a remnant. We're out to reach individuals with the gospel of Christ. We're, we're, we're there to give them the message of freedom through Jesus to come and find out why they can be and must be grateful because of what Christ has done. Uh, the generation in the end of the age is also going to be violent. Uh, the Bible says treacherous, reck reckless, and brutal. I don't need to make any commentary on that. You know where you're living. You've seen how desperate it's become lately. Violent, treacherous, brutal, not just here in America, look all over the world. You read the headlines this week of two uh, Islamists went into a Catholic church in Normandy, France, and beheaded the priest in the middle of the mass, in the middle of the service. The Bible says in the last days, Timothy, you need to know that it's going to be treacherous. It's going to be perilous. It's going to be reckless, and it's going to be brutal. And then you have this one thing that I think needs to hit home with all of us. Uh, in the last days, it's described also as outwardly religious. Now watch this. It says, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. <laughs> that is, in essence, that, that is religion in the absence of God. The Holy Spirit comes primarily with two predominant characteristics. Holiness and power. Holiness and power. Paul writes Timothy, says, Timothy, mark it down. In the last days, there's going to be a presentation of a form of godliness. But Timothy, when the layers are peeled back and you get to the core of it, it's only the outward shell because on the inside there is no holiness and there is no power. Why is that? Because there's no Holy Spirit. God is absent from a lot of the religious activity that is going on right now. And it doesn't mean that people aren't in some way sincere towards the Lord, but they're operating with a husk and they're missing the substance of it. And that could be anywhere from fundamentalist evangelicism or it could be uh, in, in, in the Vatican and it could be anywhere in between in, in hyper-Pentecostalism or it could be in the New Age and just, I mean, some of the silly stuff that we're hearing in, in these two conventions and just all this lip service to God. I'm, I'm like, come on, I'd have more respect for you if you just came out and said, you're a pagan, you don't give a rip about God, you're just trying to do what you think is best. I would, I would much rather hear a politician say that. But it's not, it's not acceptable in our day. So instead of denouncing or decrying biblical Christianity or Orthodox Judaism for that matter, what people are doing is they're giving lip service but if you inspect it, there's no truth, there's no power, and there's certainly no holiness. So we've got to guard ourselves from these things. Now, this is not happy. Granted, it's not happy. It doesn't have to be happy to be true, and it doesn't have to be happy to be healthy. 
And what we need to do is we need to have our eyes wide open and we need to say, you know, I'm looking around at this age and these little landmines are everywhere. I mean, you've got this promise that at the end of the age it's going to be idolatrous, it's going to be prideful, it's going to be rebellious and violent and outwardly religious. And here's the way I, I apply these verses. I'm not trying to lay this over you and find, okay, is David matching up with this? How about Polly and Walker? We got Walker in there. I look at this and I say, man, is, is this stuff going on in my heart? Do I have a shred of this kind of end times uh, denunciation? Is any of this trying to seep into my life? And I'm just going to tell you, you're walking in a world that is pouring this stuff at you. And if you're not actively resisting it, it is definitely getting on you. And if you don't actively resist it for a long extended time, it's not going to get on you. It's going to get in you. So we've got to fight back with this. Now, you're not without remedy. You're not without hope. This is the bad news. The gospel is good news. But the gospel is good news because, well, it's the bad news that makes the good news good. And so let's get further down. Now, now we're going back to Samuel's day. Say, Jeff, why did you start there? I want to show you in this series, and even in this message in particular, that the depravity of man is not new. I'm not even sure that we are more evil inherently as the human race than we were in ages past. But I will say this. We are much more sophisticated at manifesting our evil. We have much more clever ways to just kind of perform our evil deeds. We have so many different avenues by which we can express our depravity. So I'm going to take you back to Samuel's time. And let's see what the Bible says about what was going on in Samuel's day. So the description of those days I've just given you. It was Samuel's day. It was David's day. It was the days of John the Baptist. It was the days of the Reformation. It's the days going on right now because mankind hasn't changed. So let's go backwards a little bit, and now let's get into the life of Samuel. What was the result of this kind of depravity in Samuel's day? Well, I'm going to give it to you twice because the Scriptures give it to you twice. In the book of Judges, you're going to find out Samuel lived in that time where the Judges came into being. And here we have two descriptions, and they're the same thing in two different places. The result of people living uh, a life of rebellion, idolatry, violence, and outward religious piety. What's the result? Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Judges chapter 17, verse 6. And in case you didn't get it there, Judges 21, 25, last verse in the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If we remove God, his character, his nature, his authority, his word, his promises, if we in any way evict him from the arena of our country, from the arena of our churches and our families, or even the arena of our own individual hearts, let me tell you inevitably what's going to happen. You and I and all those around us that give in to this, we will end up doing what we think is right. We will choose what is right, what is wrong. We will decide if it, can, if it conflicts with God's word. When we get to this kind of place, we will convince ourselves that we don't have to align with God's word. We, we, we will reinterpret it so that God's word matches our desires. And that's epidemic right now. And so now the Bible doesn't mean what it plainly means because we've got enough of our own human fingerprints on it. And we have literally changed the teaching of the scriptures, not only that they don't collide with our, our 
carnal impulses. But in some places, people are using the scriptures to facilitate their carnal impulses. But God's in favor of this. God made me this way. God has no problem with this. God's okay with this. And, and whether it be morality, whether it be um, mission in life, people can use God's word to do anything. But in, in the day of the judges, they weren't even doing that. They were just saying, I'm right because I say I'm right. I like what I think. I want to do what I want to do. I'm not accountable. I don't have to be responsible. As a matter of fact, if I can work this thing the way I want to work it, I won't have to listen to anybody. I, I want to ask you a question here. And again, some of this is challenge, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you on a high note. If you can make it that far with me, uh, stay with me because we're going to see how God takes care of all of this mess. It's a big stinking mess. I think that's the Hebrew there, a big stinking mess. But, but God's not up there saying, oh no, what am I going to do? I never had any clue that it was going to get this bad. Friends, he told us ahead of time. He told us how bad it was going to be, and he's going to remedy it. But between that, this moment and the moment where he remedies it, remed, fixes it, we're going to find out this, that all around you there are people that are just committed to doing what's right in their own eyes. And that's what happens when you evict God out of your life, when a country does the same, a church, a religious movement. You get to do what you think is right. I don't think any of us have that, like, broadly defining who we are and how we're living. But I'm just going to get real with you. It is very easy, it's very common, for us to convince ourselves that it's okay to live generally for God, but reserve little places where we're going to do what we think is right. We manage our sin we kind of cordon off little parts of our hearts or our minds or our testimonies and we say, God, you've got 99%. This 1%, I'm not really convinced. And so until you convince me, I'm going to do what's right in my eyes. I just want to encourage us not to allow those seeds of rebellion to get in there. I, I, I don't worry so much about other people deceiving me. I worry about me deceiving me. Nobody talks to you more than you. Did you know that? nobody is teaching you more than you're teaching you. You're, you're listening to yourself all the time. And I, I don't know if it was Tozier, it may have been A.W. Tozier, but uh, I remember years ago reading a quote saying, are you listening to yourself more than you are talking to yourself? And what he meant by that is, are you being proactive and training yourself how to think? Are you just kind of listening to the, the flow of how you go naturally? Friends, we need to take up the, and the, the loins of our mind and gird them up and be sober and be renewed in our minds and, and not lean to our own understanding. Sometimes God's ways are going to be counterintuitive to the ways of the world, to your own inclinations. There are going to be times this year, the remainder of this year, where you're going to be tested in certain points where God is going to want to lead you to something that he's going to bless and he's going to touch, and yet it's going to go against your common sense or your reason. And if you're not careful, it is so easy for all of us just to say, you know, I'm just going to do what I think is right. And we don't abide and we don't wait. And so in the book of Judges, it was even more accelerated. When Samuel was going to come into the earth, the description of that time was that the context of the culture was everybody was a law unto themselves. It, it was the political correctness of our day run amok in his day that there was literally the, the scent in the air was that nobody's going to tell me what to do. 
And so it brought about some really uh, perilous and difficult times into which Samuel would be born. So let's go further. Look at the anarchy. This is it. The result was that everybody did that which was right and in their own eyes. But here's what allowed that to happen. It was a spirit of anarchy. And we see this in four different places in the book of Judges. Let me just read them to you again. They're redundant, but how many of you believe that the Holy Spirit intentionally inspires the word of Scripture? I mean, he inspires the word. So he's not just kind of tossing out stuff flippantly. When, when he writes it four times, it may mean that we really need to get it. And so this is what he says in Judges 17.6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Judges 18.1. In those days there was no king in Israel. Judges 19.1. In those days when there was no king in Israel. And Judges again, 21.25, the last book, verse in the book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Let me give you something here. This predates human kings in Israel. They were ruled by judges. They had other people that led. But God always wanted to serve as the, 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 the lone monarch over his chosen people. But Israel was looking at all these other nations, and they had human kings. And all sorts of things were attributed to these human kings. But Israel was starting to want to be like the other nations. But in the in-between stage, they had no human leader. And at this point, they had backed away from their holy leader. They had moved away from God. And so they had no human leader to guide them. And the, the New Testament teaches us that God raises up leaders to, in part, to inhibit the progress of evil. One of the things that leaders are to do is to regulate and prohibit the growth of evil. But in Israel they had no human leader and they had begun to move away, greatly away, from God, their, their holy king. And so you've got a spirit of anarchy. There's always this lie of the enemy. Young, young people get it. I, I, I bought into it between the ages of probably 16 and when I was converted at age 24, is that no accountability is the greatest freedom. Young people love that. Don't, don't you tell me what to do. Have your kids told you that yet? Mine will tell me that once if they ever tell it to me. Once. They'll tell it to me once. And we'll, we'll, thank you, Elena. We will clarify to them that, no, we'll actually tell you what to do and enforce it because that's part of what parents do. But the, the, what I'm trying to say here is that the whole spirit of that generation was everybody was doing what they wanted to do as they saw fit. And the, the reason is, is because they had no headship. They had nobody overseeing them. The idea that the greatest freedom is for you and I to have no accountability is a lie straight out of the pit of hell. You and I must have people that love us enough to look us in the eye from time to time and say, no, or you're wrong, or I'm not going to let you do that, or you're making a mistake, or you're slipping. We need people in our lives like that. We happen to live in a generation also that doesn't, that we, we bristle against that because it's infected us. Can you not see it? Do you not see that, that in this generation when, when somebody tells somebody no, th there isn't like, okay, well, explain yourself to me. That's not the initial response. It's not, okay, I hear you telling me no. Can you help me to understand why? The initial response, generally speaking, is you're not going to tell me no. It actually fosters more of a rebellious spirit instead of somebody saying humbly, okay, this is somebody that cares about me. This is somebody whose life, they have it together for the most part. I wonder if they're trying to help me. But when you don't have anybody that's allowed to rule anywhere in your life, you're in the most dangerous place you've ever been. Uh, I, I traffic in, in most of the areas where, 
where I relate to people, most of the time, um, just by virtue of where God has me in life, I'm, I'm in a leadership position. I, I lead in my home. I, I help lead in this assembly. There's other areas in Transforming Truth in that ministry, I lead, I make a lot of decisions. And w- the worst thing that can happen to any of us, and especially those of you that have roles of leadership, the worst thing that can happen is for you to get sequestered in your leadership role and you're isolated and nobody's checking you. Nobody's coming and saying, hey, I love you, have you considered this? Or, hey, I love you, but you are about to make a big mistake. And I want to encourage you, as a, especially those of you that the head of your households, I, I'll tell you this, my, my kids don't rebel, but sometimes my kids get it right and I've got it wrong. And my kids have learned that if they will approach it the right way, mom and dad are kind of open to uh, valid correction. If you don't ever tell your kids you're sorry, you're probably missing some great opportunities to validate your Christianity before their eyes. Because as moms and dads, we're going to make mistakes because we're just sinners. We just got there before our kids. I mean, you know, we're, we're sinners too. And, and our kids need to hear us say from time to time, you know what? Yeah, daddy's head of the household or mama's head of this single household. And yeah, we made a mistake. I really blew it. I hurt your feelings. I yelled. I lost my temper. I sinned against you. I did this or that. But if you're not careful, you'll get sequestered and, and you'll convince yourself, well, you know what? I don't have no king over me. I'm the king in this palace. And uh, I just did what I thought was right in my own eyes, and I ain't apologizing to anybody. And your, your, our kids or our wives or the people we do life with, they see that and they say, oh, man, that's a big breach in her testimony or his testimony. So the point of all of that is, is saying this. Beware of the anarchy spirit of your generation. It is getting very public. I understand there are governmental ills. There are major issues between uh, the races, different races in our culture. There is imbalance. There is injustice. I just preached on this a few weeks ago. There are people in authority, whether it be law enforcement or government, that are bad seeds. But they're also in our banks and our grocery stores, our schools and our churches. So it's not just law enforcement. The, The point being is this. There's an anarchist spirit it's the spirit of the age. It's literally demonic in its nature, but it's facilitated by human flesh where people just don't want to have a king over them. They don't want any authority over them. So we've really got to check our hearts to make sure none of that is seeping into us. Now, let me finish this because I promised you I was going to end on a high note and I've got to do it here in the next handful of minutes. But I'm going to give you the last bad thing and then we're going to celebrate, okay? So let me give you the last bad thing first. Uh, my fourth point is this the attitude in those days. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the Psalms and the Proverbs, which although they weren't exactly the days of Samuel, they were stacked right after the days of Samuel. So what was there in seed form in Samuel gives expression in the days of David and the psalmist and then Solomon and the Proverbs. And so we have defiant words that are revealed in Psalm chapter 12. Listen to the words that the psalmist is writing. And he's actually praying an imprecatory prayer. He says, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boast. Those who say, and he quotes the the speaking of the age of his day, he says, with our tongue we will prevail and our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Now let's let's just slow down for a minute there. I'm not even sure who wrote the the 12th Psalm. We usually assume it's David. David didn't write all the Psalms, but this one might have been from him. 
And David is a believer, the psalmist is a believer who's fed up. The psalmist is getting, you know, alone with the Lord. All of the psalms were songs that were sung. So this is actually a song. We don't write songs like that anymore because, you know, the radio station's not going to play them. But this was inspired singing that would have been sung in some form of, of worship gatherings or liturgical services. And the psalmist is fed up. He's a believer. And he's saying, as he's writing this beautiful, holy, worshipful song of the Lord, he just throws in this line, Cut off their lips. Lord, cut off the bragging, boasting lips that speak flattering words, that say stuff, Lord, like, with our tongues we will prevail, our lips are with us. And then this question, who, who is master over us? By the time, and Samuel had passed off the scene more than likely by the time this psalm was written. But people had gone from doing what was right in their own eyes to now boldly daring anybody to counter them, even God. Who's master over us? Who's going to rule over me? And literally, I can talk my way out of anything. My lips are with me. My tongue can get me out of this. So there's the pride, there's the arrogance, there's the defiance, there's the rebellion, and now it is is such an intensity that the psalmist, in a a worshipful time of the Lord, writing a song of of praise or worship or petition, literally says, Lord, can't you just shut them up? Can't you, I mean, he says, cut off their lips. I don't know if he meant cut off their lips, like cut cut them off physically, but he's saying silence them. So Jeff, so what? (laughs) It helps me. It helps me to know that it's not wrong for us when we're looking at the world around us that we're grieved, that we're saying, this, this is just wrong. I mean, I, I worry about Christians that, you know, aren't grieved with what they see going on. We have to extract our heads out of the sand and recognize, wow, man, just because it's prophesied doesn't mean we should be laissez-faire about it and just kind of quesera, sarah. That this stuff that is going on is heinous, it's evil, it's wicked, it's wrong. But ultimately, we can do all the protesting, all the demonstrating, all of the you know, complaining and, and all of the groaning, and ultimately, that is not going to change the culture. It's just not. And I'm not saying that there aren't times where we shouldn't protest. I actually believe there are times. But friends, you don't have enough time to protest everything. And you were born and then second born, you were born again for things that are greater than just spending your time denouncing what's wrong in the world. I like what the psalmist said in another place. I pour out my complaint before you. I pour out my complaint before God. I try to bless people as much as I can, but I'm going to tell you something. The one I complain to the most, and when I say complain, I mean it in the biblical sense. I come to the Lord and I just say, God, I don't know what to do about these evils that I see. One of the things stirring in my spirit right now has been for really the better part of a year and a half, and it's just growing, is the, the racial injustice. We're, Dustin and I are networking with uh, five pastors in our area And one of the things that we want to be talking about, that we believe that racial reconciliation will come through the church if it's going to come at all. And I don't mean this offensively to anybody, but listen, Black Lives Matter is not going to bring racial reconciliation. It doesn't mean that the issues don't need to be addressed, but that's not going to bring about the result that we think we want. And so we've got to say, well, where's that going to come from? Well, the answer is this. What other place 
do all races find equality with one another? What other place but the cross of Jesus Christ? And who else is going to facilitate that message other than the people of the cross? And so, yes, there's a time to complain. There's a time to protest. We can't pretend everything's great or everything's fair or everything's wonderful. But at the same time, we are called not to change an entire culture. We are called to go after individuals in love with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to rescue the perishing, to care for the dying, to bring the message of the cross, the death, the, the sacrifice, and the resurrection of the Son of God so that people can be reconciled unto God. That is our message. But doesn't it get heavy sometimes where, yes, we want to do that, Lord, but God, look at the world around us. How do we press through all of this stuff? And so I read the words of the psalmist, and he says, Lord, what are you going to do about these wicked people? And it makes me feel like I have a friend when I read those words. I'm like, brother, I feel you, man. I don't know what to do either. I don't know why God hasn't done it yet. Because I know none of you have ever asked God, what are you waiting for? I mean, I'm sure it's just me in the room. Lord, what are you waiting for? You're, Lord, bring down the, the fire stones on these people. You know, just do something. <laughs> That's why I'm not God. Just one of many reasons why I'm not. Um, he's merciful and gracious and kind, and um, he's got a plan. And so these defiant words, they revealed the attitude of the day, but also deadly ways. Proverbs 14, 12. This is even after the psalmist came after Samuel, and more than likely in Psalm 12. And then uh, Solomon's writing a proverb here in Proverbs 14. He's, of course, the son of David. David was anointed by Samuel. And this is, this is what Solomon writes. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. Um, that's spoken twice in the Proverbs, I think. Maybe Proverbs 16. It's said again. I remember being an unsaved man, thinking he was saved, because I prayed a prayer when I was a kid in church, and I got baptized at Christian camp at age 14, and I commenced to living horribly between age 14 and my early 20s, and I remember telling Scott Johnson, I was very angry, and Scott was witnessing to me over a couple of years, and I was like, dude, listen, man, I, I know my Bible. I prayed that prayer. It's almost like I got God's arm behind his back. I'm going to hijack him and take him at his word. He said if I prayed this prayer that I'd go to heaven when I die. So I, I was holding on to this prayer, and I remember Scott would probably once a week just say, he'd just stand there. He was so good at what he did. He'd just stand there and goes, hey, you remember that proverb? There's a way that seems right to a man. But Jeff, remind me again, what does it say that leads to? I'm, like, I'm not going to tell you that verse, man. No, 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 because I, I can't remember. You tell me because we've gone over that verse a hundred times. What, what does it say that there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof, oh yeah, it's the way of death. All right, I got to go, man. We'll see you. And, and he'd walk away. He'd just plant that kind of stuff in my head. People that are living in overt rebellion and ungodliness and blindness Many, if not most of them, don't think they're doing anything wrong. You and I look at them because we've been made alive, we've been quickened in the Spirit by the grace of God and the presence of Jesus and the indwelling Holy Spirit. So our eyes are opened and, and we think, well, can't they just see it? The answer is no, because Paul says in another place that the God of this world has blinded the minds of those that don't believe. And so it seems right to them. You name whatever kind of immorality and where that lands in a sector of society, it just seems right to them. Why? Because they're loving pleasure. And if it feels good, it's got to be right. 
or they're loving themselves. And if it feels good, it's just gotta be right. Or, or, or it, it's providing for them, it's empowering them. And so if they can get more money, they love that money as we're told in 2 Timothy chapter three. And so it seems right. And the world system is just basically reinforcing to people, it's right to live for yourself. It's right to live without a king over you. It's right to live in rebellion. It's right to be unquestionable and unaccountable. It's right. And so generation after generation is learning that and it's getting layered and reinforced and now here we are in the 21st century and you can't even correct anybody anymore. Try to correct them with your horn at a traffic light, you're liable to get shot. Try to correct them in the public forum, you're liable to get sued. Try to correct them at work about a a moral issue, you're liable to be on the internet the next day as the biggest hating bigot in the workplace because people don't want to be corrected. So if I sent you home tonight right now, which I'm not going to do, but I am going to in about five, ten minutes, we'd all be depressed. We'd be like, I am never going back on a Wednesday night again. That was not fair. I came in dragging. I'm leaving dragging lower. No, I'm not going to do that to you. I'm going to take you to the back of the book. Because at the back of the book, the back of your Bible, is where we are, our senses are bombarded with the overwhelming conclusion to all of Earth's problems. You see, we began this message talking about the present. We talked about the present day. And then we went back for just a little bit to the time of the judges. So we've covered past and present, but I want to go into the future because there's coming a time that there will be no more rebellion. There will be no more hostility in the sense of overt opposition to the Lord. There will not be allowed in that day any more pride. It will not be a day of self because self will have been by that moment permanently, eternally defeated by the one who called us to crucify ourself. And so let's go into the book of Revelation and let's look at the remedy for those days, the days of Samuel, the days for that matter of Adam and Eve, the days of the early church and the church fathers and the Reformation and all the things up to this very day. What's the remedy for all of this badness, all this angst, all of this sickness, all of this sinfulness? What's the remedy? Well, there's only one and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about what we're going to do to fix everything. And so let's look at this. Um, The remedy begins with just, you know, this little subtle verse in Revelation 19. Holy resistance from heaven. John is receiving a vision of a future time, and he writes this. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. I'm going to mess some of you up for a minute, but I'm going to do it because I love you. There's coming a day where the sweet little, you know, third grade VBS Jesus in our minds is going to be taken away and replaced with the Jesus that's coming in glory, and he's coming to make war. That does not fit with most modern theology, most of the way it's perpetuated. But when Jesus comes again, it ain't going to be on a donkey. It's not going to be people saying, oh, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When Jesus comes back, and do you believe he's coming back? Do you believe that? I mean, I know we believe it theologically, but can you taste it? 
man, I am tasting it. He's coming back, and when he's coming back, he's not going to be turning the other cheek. He's not going to be coming to show mercy. He really isn't. It doesn't mean he's changed. It just means that all that mercy that he's made available will one day not be available at all to those that have rejected him. Grace, God will always be gracious, but people will not always have access to that grace. He will always be merciful, but people will not always have access to that mercy. He will always be the saving redeemer, but people, because of their unbelief, their hardened hearts, and their refusal to come to him, will one day lose their access to all of that goodness that is in him. And in this scene, Jesus is coming back, and he's saying, enough. We are fed up. And we're ready for him to say enough, but because he is so consummately much more merciful than us and gracious than us and more compassionate than us and more patient and long-suffering than us, we've cried out enough and he's looking at us and he loves us, but he says, man, you ain't even been here 80 years yet and you're crying enough. I've been watching over this since the garden and I'm still waiting, but believe me, I won't wait forever. So he says, John does, that in the end of the age, the resistance that it's going to put down, all the things that grieve us as Christians, that grieve the heart of God, we're not going to be able to do it on our own. I stand for morality. I don't mind telling you right here in this room that I am a pro-life. I am a, uh, a singularity of marriage between man and woman. I am an individual that believes in the sanctity of the home. I believe in God's roles for husbands, wives, and children. I believe in morality. I, I, I believe that the, that the Ten Commandments, though we're not saved by them, but they're, they're still expressions of the heart of God, and they need to be carefully woven into our own lives before we're protesting them about being taken down from a courthouse. Ask yourself, have I taken them down? Or are they hanging in my heart? And so I, I believe in all of the morality that is uh, supported by Scripture. But I'm not going around saying, be moral, be moral, be moral. Our call and our message is, repent before the Son of God because He's merciful and saving. You'll be moral after He saves you. And you'll be progressively moral as He continues to sanctify you. But we, we protest about morality with the same breaths that ought to be used for promoting the gospel. And so we've got to strike that balance. Ultimately, the final resistance has to come from Him who has the power to put down evil. You and I can suppress evil. We can try to legislate people out of evil. We can try to lock people up when they commit too much evil. And there's, there's common sense and all of that. But you can't extinguish evil. You don't have that power. Jesus does. Jesus can expunge it from your heart and my heart. And he can, one day he's going to expunge it from existence. Can, can you fathom this? He's going to expunge and eradicate every trace of evil in the universe. It's going to be gone. We cannot even fathom that. And yet God's work will not be done until he has restored everything to the original design that Adam forfeited in the garden. And Jesus will not come up short of that. So friends, you that are in Christ are going to be participants in that. You're going to witness it, but you're also going to live in it. And we're going to glorify him for all of the ages because he has come and done away with evil. Look in verses 12 and 13 of Revelation 19. Holy resistance from heaven will give way to uncontested glory from heaven. Look at what John writes. Speaking of Jesus coming in his glory, he says, his eyes are like a flame of fire. 
And on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. By the way, if you study the book of Revelation, when it talks about those that are clothed in white linen, it's called the righteousness of the saints. And so in that picture right there, when Jesus is coming back to make war on planet earth and all of the antichrist and the armies of the antichrist and the beast and the false prophet and all the nations that have rejected him, the Bible says that in part of that scene, and I don't know how it all plays out time-wise, just let me enjoy the moment here for a second without getting caught up in timelines, that we're going to be with him, that we're going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And when he establishes his dominion on earth, I don't know how it all plays out. That's part of the excitement because I know I'm not going to be disappointed. But those of us that are in Jesus, we're going to be standing in triumph over every shred of evil that plagues our own bodies and minds right now, that has destroyed the lives of those that we love, that has tried to encroach upon our own lives, that every demon that has ever come up against us, most of us are ignorant of the demonic activity that has been assigned to our lives and there's going to come a day where all blinders will be taken off. We'll be coming back with King Jesus to establish dominion and put down the rebellious armies and we're going to see everything as he sees it. And so the demons that have attacked us and tried to bring destruction to our minds and our bodies and our, our very souls before we came to Christ, we're actually going to witness them bow before the Son of God and say, it is true, Christos, Kurios, Christ is Lord. We're going to see that. To top it all off, y'all ain't hearing me tonight, I'm telling you. I can't wait. The Bible says, the Bible forbids me from taking vengeance. And the, 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 the statement that qualifies that is, the vengeance that you want to enact, Jeff, is actually belonging to the Lord. You don't get to do that. But it doesn't say that it won't ever happen. It just says that God doesn't assign me the jurisdiction over leveling the, the, bouncing the scales and leveling the playing field. But it does say that God will do it. And so every antagonist, every opponent, every whether human or spiritual, angelic or, or carnal, everything that has come against us, God says, if you'll wait on me in my timing, I promise you, when my son comes back, he's going to take care of every bit of it, and it won't be done, Jeff, in your absence. You're going to be coming with him, arrayed in white linen as the armies of God come back to earth. And that's you. That's you. So the last thing, and then I'm going to cut us loose. Mm. I could almost levitate right now. I just, I just, it feels good. The final word from heaven. Here it is, man. I mean, this is, this is our Bible. Don't forget this as you go home tonight. The final word from heaven, from his mouth, from the mouth of Jesus comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Don't miss that. To strike down the nations, he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has written his name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let me tell you what that moment is. <laughs> That's the moment. So much I could say here. He comes back to this planet. It's not science fiction. It's not H.G. Wells. It's true, it's biblical prophecy that the Son of God, 
who ascended off of this earth, and the angels looked to the disciples and said, why are you standing around gazing up into the heavens? The one you just saw ascend will, will descend again in like manner. He will come down as you saw him going up. He's coming bodily. He's coming visibly. He's coming physically in a glorified body with the armies of God. And the Bible says that the nations, that means it will come not in this kind of misty, foggy, you know, kind of a Narnia kind of feel, but there will be nations and rulers and presidents and prime ministers and armies and governments and all this. And Jesus Christ is going to invade this world and he's going to say, every one of you is about to give an answer to me. And the Bible says he's going to rule over the nations. Now that's a whole series of sermons in itself, but I want you to get the general picture that the son of God, this world is going to be ruled by a resurrected Jewish king. And he's going to come, and I mean, all the anti-Semites are going to just be, they're, uh, they're, they're in big trouble. And, and he's coming back, and he has come after you, and he said, I want you in my kingdom with me forever. And by his grace, you said, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And he said, enter into your everlasting rest. You'll be with me forever. And when he comes to establish that rule, you won't be forced to confess him as Lord because you will at that point been doing it ever since you got saved. It'll be your delight. And he's going to make war and ultimately every single creature that can articulate anything, the articulation will be this. Jesus Christ is, always has been, and forever will be, the Lord over every other Lord and the king above every other king. That is what the Christian's heart, our Christian hearts want most of all. We want to see the vindication of the holy name of the Son of God. We want everybody to know that this one name Jesus who came after us, who saved us, who forgave us, who cleansed us, who shepherded us, who will usher us out of this, this world one day, either via death or when he returns, we will leave and be with him. He, is go he has brought us to this place where we are, our, we are our beloved's and he is ours. And it's going to be that way forever. So when you walk out of these doors tonight, I want you to know you're walking out into a chaotic world. You are not walking alone. And you are not walking out into a chaos that won't be turned into order one day. And the order will come when the king over every king comes and says, I'm back. Hallelujah. Amen. And praise his name tonight.